And when I step back and look at it, Father, you know, fiction is weird because you're writing from your memory, you're writing from your past, you're writing from things you're seeing now. Um, when I look at it now and read it and get letters from people who've read it, it really is about nourishing the gifts we're given as children and as adults. That voice you just heard there, uh, that of Raymond Arroyo, host of The World Over on EWTN Television. He's with us today on Radio Free Acton. So glad to have you with us once again uh, for the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and I'm your host here on Radio Free Acton. That's what we call the podcast. We'll get to uh, our interview today, which features uh, Acton Institute president and co-founder Reverend Robert A. Sirico talking with... Uh, Raymond Arroyo of EWTN Television. Uh, We'll get to that in just a moment. First of all, I want to review, uh, because we do have our big event coming up, uh, as usual, Acton University, happening uh, June 16th through the 19th this year. And um, we are are fast approaching the close of registration. So if you're interested in attending Acton U, if you don't know anything about Acton U, or if you know about it and you think maybe it's something for you, I'd encourage you to head over to uh, university.acton.org. And uh, get the registration process started. Remember, uh, closing uh, of applications this year for uh, Acton University will be May 20th. You have to register on or before midnight on May 20th. Uh, I don't want to waste too much time on introductory comments here today. We do have a good interview here. uh, And uh, let me uh, just step aside and hand the microphone over to Acton Institute President Reverend Robert A. Sirico as he talks with Raymond Arroyo here on Radio Free Acton. I'm delighted to welcome Raymond Arroyo to the Acton Podcast, and uh, it's nice to have the tables turned on you. I, I, not for me, it's not. <laughs> I'm out of control. You're, you're, you're the one who's about. usually interviewing me. And, right. and as I was recalling last night, it, it goes back to a conference we had on Welfare That Works. I think that was the name of it, in the 1990s. Oh, my gosh. You have Washington, a great DC, memory. And you came up to me, and you were not yet... Uh, an EWTN reporter at that time. Who were you working uh, for? I was working for the Family Channel. The I Family was working Channel. For, for the Family Channel as their congressional correspondent. And uh, it was a very, you know, it was. I remember the conference, and I had read your writings in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, so I knew exactly who you were, but, you know, you didn't know who I was, and that's probably a good thing. Well, then there was destiny. It was destiny. <laughs> we became good friends over the years, and... Tell us, I mean, probably what you're best known for is uh, the uh, work that you've done on EWTN, particularly with Mother Angelica. Mm. Tell uh, our listeners a little bit about how you got into that, how you met Mother and uh, what Act- became of Actually, that. a friend of mine who had a magazine in Washington, D.C., asked me if I would write a piece on Mother Angelica. And... Um, and she, uh, they said, it, it, this piece we're looking for is uh, an in-depth feature on this woman. I didn't know who she was. Never heard of her. Mm-hmm. Never heard the name. So this Mother is about Angelica. when? 1995. Okay. And um, so I, I will, did some research. Once I did the research and figured out who she was, I said, oh, this is it's a good paisan. She'll, yeah. I, I'll, I understand her. My mother and grandmother in New Orleans knew exactly who she was. They uh-huh. were huge fans of her show. So I went down to Birmingham. I did this interview with her. Uh, we met. And the first time I walked into the office and met her, it was like I had known her my whole life. We had this instant connection. 
I also, because I didn't realize how big a deal Mother Angelica was, I didn't worship her in the way others might. Oh, Mother, oh. I didn't have that. We, so we had this great rapport. And she liked that we met as equals. Um, she also liked, I think, that I was the only Italian in the orbit. So I kind of got her. I understood now, her. Now, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with EWTN, and there are two or three of them, I think, in the country, uh, this is a woman who is a uh, cloistered nun who, uh, in the midst of Alabama, begins this television, cable television network Correct. that becomes the largest Catholic network. That's right. Even though the bishops that had $5 million... Uh, Five. Try $40 million they tried to spend on a network that didn't ever take root. It never... Nothing so she, she built this. I mean, she's an entrepreneur. She was a total entrepreneur. When I read your work, when I, when I see the stuff Acton is doing, Mother Angelica is really, in many ways, the embodiment of this. And it is having a vision, moving forward against the odds. And, you know, she started – it's a classic American entrepreneurial story. She had a vision. She had a burning in, her, in, in the pit of her stomach, and it was, I have to build a network to bring truth and hope to these millions of people who are, who are without it. And she believed that. She started the thing in her monastery garage, which mm -hmm. the, the, the incubator of so many great uh, businesses. Uh, she had $200 in her pocket when she started. She had limited broadcast experience, and she marched forward in faith. It was an amazing story. On the surface, it's an amazing story. When you read the ups and downs, the challenges, the people who tried to take it over. And that's all in the, the book. You, you, you wrote the biography of Mother Angelica entitled... Uh, Mother Angelica, the remarkable story of a nun, her nerve, and a network of miracles. And that that really... Says it about her. Yeah, yeah that's she her. Was, I think Father Newhouse, Richard John Newhouse, uh, once in an editorial called her the uppity nun. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> that uppity nun. No, and, and and later when Richard and I talked about her, uh, he he would say, you know, ah, Raymond, I don't know if anybody uh, in the whole history of the faith ever quite reached uh, so many millions of people in so powerful a way as Mother Angelica. It's very important that we realize that, and that's true. No, uh, she's a remarkable woman who recently died died on easter sunday was going through her agony her final agony on good friday yeah no she was and 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 even before that um it was a long i mean imagine 15 years deprived of the one thing she really had which was her voice yeah. the body you know her body was was riddled with with uh, ailments uh she she had difficulty walking she never had that. She wasn't a great intellectual. It was her mouth. It was her communicating ability that was her great strength and gift. And it was deprived her of those last years. So it, it, to to kind of give the panorama here, she sure. she built this network. Yes. Incredible. Had her battles with the bishops and the, all of that. The only woman in the history of broadcasting who for 20 years founded and led a network as CEO and chairman of the board. Right. There is no other contender. She's it. Right. In, in the global scene, Mother Angelica should be getting awards from the Emmys, from the women in broadcasting. It's a scandal that these people have ignored her massive contribution right. well, as that, a woman. It's to be expected. Yeah. But then she uh, becomes debilitated and, right. as you say, unable to speak yeah. in a room in her convent, which you visited and... Uh, she you did parenthetically too? 
mention that you, you got me to meet her. Yeah. Um, and that is that becomes the period of her grand silence because right. she can't speak. Right. The second book is the, the sequel and, to the biography, which finishes the tale I've called Mother Angelica, Her Grand Silence. And there was some. there's going to be some stuff in that book that wasn't in the first book oh, that will be... Lots of it. It's funny you called the grand silence, but it's. Uh, I said when I heard it was coming out, uh, I tweeted, uh, "Fasten your seatbelts." <laughs> well, there are a lot of. There's a lot revealed here about her earlier life. Yes. Some of which I cut out of the biography because of timing. Sure. And it was running long. It was throwing the narrative off. But now it seems to fit. Um, so I, I add some of those stories. But people don't realize, and I think as people. We don't want to look at death and dying and the end of life. It's right. a painful thing because, hey, it's what awaits us all. And when you look at Mother's last 15 years, she reached more people from that corner room in Hansville, Alabama, and touched more lives than at any point during her, during her active ministry, during any point during her 20-year broadcasting history. Right. That is astounding. Yeah. And the, it's the perverse economy of God which isn't perverse at all, but the way we look at it, we look at it as if it's perverse. But it's the way he used her. She completes her final mission. She fights for her religious order. She fights for her own soul. There are supernatural things that happened in that corner room that no one knows about. No, it's going to be remarkable. No, it's it, it's a great story. It's just, it's a tip, it, it's a beautiful book um, in that I think it shows, it underscores the value of every human life to the very end. Right. And we dare not place a value on that because we don't know exactly. how God is using it. Yeah. And in Mother's case, you see how it's being used. Right. So that comes out May 17th. May 17th. All right. Now, one of the things that impressed me about Mother Angelica, uh, you said she was not an intellectual. No. She wasn't. No. And yet I, I remember the great rant uh, this <laughs> of was 1993. A, 1993 World Youth Day. The organizers have a mime team who are going to do the Stations of the Cross, and they put a woman in uh, playing the part of Jesus. Now, uh, set that up. She, she, the bishops had to have her network because right. they didn't have one. Right. Well, the, the bishops and Mother Angelica partner to cover World Youth Day in 1993. And as she's watching this live... Right, so she's not on during the day. She comes on in the morning and kicks it off and then closes it at night. Yep, yep. Uh, what happens is she's watching. Actually, she's at dinner that night, and they're covering this event live. The Pope is not there. So they decide, oh, well, we can go to dinner. So, but EWTN is covering it, but they're just rolling tape. And right. it's a bunch of young people carrying the cross and doing the stations, his song and singing. But the Pope decides not to go. So Mother says, well, let's go to dinner. She goes to dinner, and as they're at dinner, they're watching on a television screen, their own feed. And this woman comes out as Jesus. Well, Mother, let's just say she wasn't pleased with the casting decision, okay? <laughs> the next day, she does something called Mother's Corner. She was so heartbroken over this. She spent all night in prayer. She was very upset by the whole thing. And uh, in the morning, she said, I want to do something live. I'm going to do it this afternoon. And you all just run on it. Give me a half hour. And nobody knew what she was going to say. She didn't know what she was going to say. Yeah. There was no script. There was no um, uh, uh, prompter, nothing. 
She sits in front of the the screen and for a half hour, reading the press release from the bishops' conference, she excoriates the the decision makers, those who created this mime troupe, and she says at one point, I'm so sick of you, liberal church in America. We're not going to take this anymore. You're blasphemy. You're you're cutting down the simple faith of people. We're going to be very Roman. We're going to be very Catholic. And that's when she made the decision to jettison her modern habit. And which she wasn't was, so modern. Which wasn't so modern. <laughs> but she returned to the very traditional, the very traditional. habit that she's known for I, now. I'm going to be, we're going to be very Roman. Very Roman. <laughs> very Catholic. But here, here's the point I want to make about that. I, I li- I've listened to that, seen that, which has now been... Um, as well as EWTN could uh, scrub it from their website. Uh, and nonetheless, I, you know, there are people who did record it when it happened. Right. Um, the fascinating thing about it is it isn't the critique and the language that I would have made. Much simpler, much more emotional, much more. Mm-hmm. But she hits all the bells. In very, all of the bells. I mean, she gets into stuff on gender, on ideology, on yeah. liturgy, uh, on doctrine, whole... on orthodoxy, yeah. right down the line. Yeah. And I think this was her genius. Well, it's a clarion call. It came right from the heart. It was inspired. Yeah. yeah. She And this is how she operated. She never premeditated or thought about anything. She, she literally, she told me once, and I think it's true, she said, my whole life is a testament to the power of divine providence. And when she did a broadcast, remember this woman would teach for two hours a week live on television without a net, right. no script, no no producer telling her what to say. She, it, this was just coming out of her. The, and it was she amazing. She'd the sit there Spirit with her Bible, and yep. she'd even take calls at times. And one of the things she did so well, and this is why I want to segue into yeah. some other stuff here, sure. she would tell stories. That's exactly right. And her mother was a great storyteller, Mae Rizzo. Uh, they had a saloon. The family had a saloon in Canton, Ohio. You're they making were this up. You're no, making this up. No, I'm not. They, they <laughs> literally had a saloon. The grandfather ran an old saloon. He was probably running booze during Prohibition when I, when I dug the records up. Uh, but it was the meeting place for all the Italians, like here in Grand Rapids. You have Polish uh, meeting halls. Oh, yes. One yeah. affiliated with the parish here. Well— they had the same thing in Canton, Ohio. Right. Um, she learned the stories from the street, and she learned how to tell them from her mother. And when she sit, sat in front of the camera, she would literally, before a show, go with the Bible. She'd flip it open. She'd say, what do you think we should talk about tonight? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, look at this. It's about joy and adversity here. We'll do that. That's what we'll do tonight. She'd literally walk out and three minutes later do an hour on it. But that was the overflow of her. She was a contemplative nun, which we forget. She was a woman of prayer. She prayed on this all day, contemplating these scriptures all day long. So you just got the overflow of her contemplation. Sure, exactly. The best kind. Now, on the theme of story Mm. and narrative, I don't know how much you credit her or your own mother with learning how to tell stories because you're a great raconteur as well. You are doing a children's series. I am. And the first volume has just come out. Give us a little snippet of what that's about right. and where people can get the book. It's called Will Wilder, The Relic of Perilous Falls. And Will is a 12-year-old adventurer. He uh, gets into all kinds of trouble by making terrible choices, I think, like all of us. He's impetuous. He has a sense of adventure. When he injures his brother's arm in a backyard accident, Will discovers that his great-grandfather has been collecting antiquities and relics 
in the middle of town in the Museum of Perilous Falls, which he founded. Now, the great-grandfather is long gone, but he's told by a groundsman about his great-grandfather and this particular relic that is purported to heal and hold back the floodwaters that surround the town. And Will reasons very quickly and impetuously as a kid would, if I can, if I can get that relic or get my hands on it, it might heal my brother's arm, get me out of this two-week punishment, and then I'll bring the relic back. Or it might <laughs> just be a pious legend that nobody uh-huh. you know, can't do a thing. But he decides to break into this undercroft with the help of his friends and a very mysterious riverboat captain. And uh, he goes in and does it. And all heck breaks loose, including the revelation of his destiny and his, his reason for being. And when I step back and look at it, Father, you know, fiction is weird because you're writing from your memory, you're writing from your past, you're writing from things you're seeing now. Um, when I look at it now and read it and get letters from people who've read it, it really is about nourishing the gifts we're given as children and as adults. And at times, parents, we try to protect our children. We almost are afraid of those gifts at times. And in Will's case, his parents are deathly afraid of it. They know what his gift is. He can see things no one else can. Mm -hmm. And what we learn together through the story is you've got to nurture these gifts because they might be important not only for the sake of that child, but the sake of all society, all of us. And you're telling stories but teaching values. Well, sure. Well, there are values in story. Every author comes to, I think, a story with his own, with everything he brings to the game. And that's your memories, your heart, your soul. So sure, there are values or non-values brought to bear. In my story, there are consequences for Will's actions, and it is a coherent moral universe. I thought that important because it's true. Right. And kids need truth. Now, let me tell you, it's not a pious tale. Uh, People have asked, well, why does he, he, he's very disobedient. Yeah, he is disobedient. Yeah, like, like, like many kids. Yeah, it's like you, you, hear confessions. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they're looking for, but kids wouldn't. Uh, the reason children are attracted to this work is because, just like the Mother Angelica story, and I learned this from telling the Mother Angelica story, it is the wounds and the mistakes of the character that we're most drawn to. Yeah. The glories, the inspiration comes from their overcoming the challenges they face, but. The wounds are what we can most identify with. So Will is a wounded kid. He makes mistakes. He's impetuous. He doesn't listen. And he discovers inch by inch, year by year, that it is life is not a solo sport. You have a family and people around you that help make it go. So this is the first volume in seven... <laughs> I almost don't want you to say it, but yeah, a multi-book series. Multi-book I series, In okay. case I cut it yeah. off at five. But, right. uh, but no, it's, uh, I've got two of the books are already written. I'm working on Good. book three now, and then uh, and we'll go from there. But it's been, it's been beautiful. The reception has been incredible. For the, and everybody's and, uh, liking it to the Harry Potter uh, well, it, it, series. I, I, it could I, become I, a new industry. Well, I, uh, the, some of the reviewers have said it's, it's Indiana Jones meets Percy okay. Jackson, which I, I like. <laughs> and the relics and antiquities in the book, all of them can be found in churches and institutions and libraries and museums all over the world. That I love, too, because kids can go on their own scavenger hunt. Sure. And they can get it on Amazon. Oh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Walmart, Costco, everybody's carrying it. Okay, that's great. Really been beautiful. Random House is the publisher. They've done an incredible job. Now, in addition to writing stories about children, <laughs> and in addition to doing uh, Frank Sinatra uh, 
songs. And in addition to being an entrepreneur yourself in a variety of different things, and this, I don't know, I don't mean this to be offensive. It surprised me to, when, when I got to know you, that you're a serious intellectual. I mean, you're not just a a song and dance man. I mean, we, we sit and have serious conversations on economics, on policy, on, and have had our, our go arounds on different issues. Well, don't give me up now. Don't, don't, don't make them think I'm smarter than, than, than. than, Well, here's, here's what I want to ask you about. It's a, it's a difficult question. (laughs) Um, and, and really kind of uh, different from the whole conversation we've been having, but what are you making of this pontificate of Francis? But look, Pope Francis, the day he was elected, I remember uh, being out in the square. We were in Rome together, yeah. We were together, there, yeah. yeah. And I remember, uh, I, was, I was live on CNN when it happened. And it kind of threw me, I knew who he was, and thank goodness I knew his background. He was number 15 in my folder, my briefing folder that I brought over, and I only had 15 candidates. So he was, he was uh, thank goodness, he was included. Uh, but look, Pope Francis has been for so many who I think have felt uh, marginalized or forgotten by the church, he has become a, a, a welcome face and someone who's incredibly attractive to them. Um, you see, when he travels, he excites people and he brings out a real emotion from them, and that should not be minimized. At the same time, there are some, I think, who are confused by some of his writings, some of his pronouncements, um, and they're wrestling with how this fits how does this piece of the puzzle fit with everything that went before it, right. particularly the long shadow of John Paul II and Benedict and everyone who preceded them, but particularly and 2, those pontificates. Years. Yeah, right. sure. But particularly those pontificates. And there are moments, there are things that seem discordant and out of tune with uh, the immediate predecessors, and that has caused some agita among uh, not only intellectuals, but theologians, canon lawyers I talk to regularly. And so I I really consult with them to tell me, look, I'm a reporter. My job is to present the questions and the challenges That's before right. everyone. Their job is to provide the answers. I don't do that. I don't do that in fiction, and I don't do it in nonfiction. You um, sure do it in conversations, well, conversations over drinks that's and a dinner. Different thing. That's different. You know, I, I, no. I mean, I have my own opinions, sure, but of course. That, that place is not necessarily for me. People don't come to me for a final word. People come to me to find out what's happening. Right. They just want a kind of a, a, a clear take on it. Look, I have reported, I am reporting things that are uncomfortable at times. When the Pope came out with this letter on uh, this exhortation on the family, I, I've been covering this up close, probably closer than anybody in the in the Catholic world and maybe outside of it. Uh, Cardinal Casper, Raymond Burke, we sat down and did extensive interviews with both of them. We covered that the synod process inside and out, and the final, this exhortation, which is sort of the summary from the Pope's perspective of this synod, so he listened to this card, these cardinals and bishops for two years. This is his final ruling. It is a complex document. Some of it is beautiful. Some of it is troubling uh, at the end, the yeah, chapter 8. Yeah, chapter 8 is the thing, footnote 351, ah. most ambiguous. And uh, and we'll leave that for another conversation. Mm-hmm. You but, can- but it's important for people to know where to look so they can have that conversation. And it is a question. Has doctrine been changed? Well, no one can change doctrine. He can't do that. But I argued and I I made a prediction at the end of last year. And my gut, against my friends Robert Royal and Father Murray, I said, 
I believe the Pope is going to change practice, which will effectually change doctrine. Because when you change practice, you do change doctrine. You, and that is, I believe that's what we Yeah, see. you don't change doctrine, but you change the belief of people. Right. And that's yeah. akin to yeah. changing doctrine. If no one reads the doctrine or understands it or practices it, is it really doctrine? I would argue no. But, but you're right. You can't change the word, the doctrine itself. But you can change the practice and acceptance and understanding of that doctrine. And that's what I think is happening. Well, this is... Uh... An interesting discussion in the midst of a lot of interesting discussions, well and our listeners can tune in to EWTN to catch Raymond show on Thursday nights. Thursday night, eight p.m. Eastern, and uh, of course we're on the internet. You can you can watch us, stream us. Uh, we have a YouTube channel at EWTN, or uh, or you can watch live. There are five re-airings through the week. Right. RaymondArroyo.com. You can find everything there on the books, on the show, the whole world. If you want to be informed on these kind of vital discussions having to do with politics, economics, theology, aesthetics. Culture, the arts. Culture, the arts. Uh, see some of Raymond's Christmas shows, singing Sinatra, oh, okay. and all of the rest of it. Go to those uh, places uh, online. And Raymond Arroyo, delight to have you with us here in Grand Rapids. Thank you, Father. Great to be back. And that brings to a close another edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks once again to Reverend Robert A. Sirico, president of the Acton Institute, for coming down and uh, handling the interview duties here uh, in the Acton studios. And uh, thanks as well to Raymond Arroyo of EWTN Television. Uh, he is a, a good sport to take the time. He's a very busy man, and it's, it's great to have him take some time to talk with us here on the podcast. Once again, the book that uh, he has just released, uh, children's book, Will Wilder, and The Relic of Perilous Falls. You can find that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all your online booksellers, and uh, go pick up a copy. It's a great book. Uh, again, thanks to uh, Father Sirico, thanks to Raymond Arroyo, and thanks, of course, to you for listening. We will be back with more editions of Radio Free Acton in the future. For now, I wish you a, a good day, and we hope to talk to you later on the next edition of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Have a good day, folks. Mm-hmm.